Very few people have the privilege of climbing Mount Everest. Few people have the privilege of step after step climbing so high to stand on top of the world and to experience the, the unsurpassed grandeur. Uh, this evening I would like to ascend a flight of five steps with you. Only five steps, but each step is breathtakingly high, exceedingly lofty. And for those of us who are used to dwelling in the valley, up high the air becomes thin and our heads become giddy. And so I trust that the fresh air of the Holy Spirit would assist us as we seek to ascend these five exceedingly high steps tonight. Starts with the invisibility of God and we from there ascend one step at a time to the glorious Christmas truth that we all may receive abundant grace from God in Christ. Five steps are in our text tonight, John chapter 1 verses 14 to 18. Uh, and of course it's necessary for, for, necessary for us to ascend them one at a time. The first step and the lowest step in this flight of five stairs is that God is invisible. God is invisible. The beginning of verse 18 says, No man hath seen God at any time. On August the 7th, 1961, 26-year-old Major German Titov became, I think, the second Soviet cosmonaut to orbit the Earth and return safely. It was a monumental feat for mankind. And sometime later, speaking at the World Fair, he recounted his experience. On a triumphant note, he let it be known that on his excursion into space, he hadn't seen God. Therefore, proving that there is no God. Well, on the same basis, he'd have to concede that there's no such thing as air. There's no such thing as electricity. There's no such thing as radiation. There's no such thing as a baby in the womb of a woman who is eight weeks pregnant. What fools we make of ourselves by denying things that we can't see. Mr. Titoff could no more see God from his spaceship than he could see God sitting at home in a dark room. You can sweep the heavens with a telescope. You might just as well sweep the kitchen with a broom. God cannot be apprehended by physical means. God is a spirit, Jesus told us in John chapter 4. And a spirit hath not flesh and bones, Jesus said in Luke chapter 24. God is a spirit, an ever-present spirit, an everywhere-present spirit, which means that he is, in theological terms, a word incorporeal, which means he's without parts. 
He's without body. He's without material experience. Therefore, he's free from all limitations. In other words, God is invisible. John acknowledges that in verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. Now, in that verse, John tells us something that we already know. But he does pose a problem for us. If we can't see God, how can we know God? Well, that's one step in this flight of five stairs in this text. And our God is invisible. Here's the second step that begins to answer the problem about God being invisible and how can he be known secondly God has revealed himself in the law of Moses this point is found in verse 17 actually let's read verse 16 and 17 together of his talking about Christ of his fullness have all we received and Grace for grace, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now there's no question, verse 17 is making a contrast and comparison between the law of Moses and Jesus Christ. The question is, what's the nature of the contrast and the comparison that John is making? Is verse 17 saying that the law of Moses is contrary to grace and truth? That Jesus is gracious and truthful, but the, the law is not gracious and truthful. Is that the nature of the comparison that John's making here? I don't think so. Because other scripture writers claim that God's law is truthful. David says in Psalm 119 verse 142, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and thy law is truth. In Psalm 19, he gives us six titles for the law and then gives us six attributes of the law. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The statutes of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The law is perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true and altogether righteous. And a more comprehensive statement of the trustworthiness of the law you, you will never find. Nehemiah says in chapter 9 verse 13, Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai and spakest with them from heaven and gavest them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments. The law is truthful. Not only is the law truthful, the law is also gracious. Yes, there were stringent requirements of the law, yet... All those who failed to live up to the requirements, for them there was a system of sacrifices. A system of sacrifices whereby they could make an atonement for their sin. That it would, it would provide a temporary covering for that sin. And even if a person was poor, there was the gracious provision for poor people to offer an appropriate, affordable 
sacrifice for their sin. No one was exempt. No one need to miss the opportunity to have their sins covered. Under the law where there was the gracious release of slaves every seven years. Set free, totally free. There were the gracious gleanings that was left behind after the harvest so that all the poor people had food to eat. There were cities of refuge, God's gracious provision for fugitives to, to run to. In many ways, in many places, the grace of God is evident in the law. So the law was both gracious and truthful. There's no doubt that John believed that. We can tell that from other things that John wrote about the law of Moses. For example, in John chapter 3, verse 14, John records the words of Jesus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so that people could be healed, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So John records there that Moses in the law does something gracious and truthful. He writes it down in the law and of course, this points to the grace and truth of Christ. But it's there in the law, the grace and truth of God. We see another example, John chapter 5, verse 46, where again, John records the words of Jesus. Jesus says, for had ye believed Moses, you would have believed me, for Moses wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? Jesus here records the fact, John wrote it down, sorry, John here records the fact, what Jesus said, that Moses and Jesus were in complete harmony. And John was writing the truth about Jesus and his grace there in the law. So when John here makes a comparison between the law of Moses and Jesus Christ, He's not saying that one is gracious and truthful and the other is not. What he is saying centers around a word that John uses back in verse 14. And that is the word full. Or the word fullness that he uses in verse 16. Notice what John says there in verse 14. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth in a way that the law of Moses is not. Jesus was the full and complete revelation and manifestation of all of God's truthfulness and all of God's grace. Jesus was a revelation of that in a way that the law wasn't. That's the comparison. What we have in the law is partial, a partial revelation of God's grace and truth. But what we have in Jesus Christ is the full revelation, the full embodiment of grace and truth. Moses bore witness to the truth of God and to the grace of God in the same way that John the Baptist bore witness to the light. John the Baptist was not that light. 
not the true light. He was a light, he was a lesser light who bore witness to the light and pointed the way to the light. The light was the reality, Jesus Christ. And in the same way, the law of Moses bore witness to the truth and the grace of God. The law wasn't the full reality. The law wasn't the full manifestation. But it bore witness, pointed the way to the full reality who is Jesus Christ. Moses in the law points the way to Jesus who is to come. Moses in the law wrote about Jesus, the brass serpent that was raised, the rock that was smitten, Passover lamb that was slain, the sacrifices that were offered, the priests that interceded, the prophets that revealed the truth, the mercy seat that was sprinkled, the manna in the wilderness. Moses gave us a foretaste of grace and truth. Jesus is the fulfillment. Moses gives us a glimpse, but Jesus reveals the glory. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says the law was a shadow of good things to come. But in Jesus we see the very image of the things. What God reveals about himself in the law through Moses was only partial. But in Jesus Christ we see the fullness. So John's point in verse 17, the law was given by Moses but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. John's point is that the law was not the, the ultimate reality. The law is not the embodiment, rather the embodiment of grace and truth is Jesus Christ. The law bears witness to God's grace and truth. And so Jesus is the fulfillment, not a contradiction, of the law of Moses. Well, that's step number two in this flight of five. says God is invisible. Secondly, God reveals himself, his grace and truth, in the law of Moses. The third step is that God became human. Verse 14 begins with this statement. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, to appreciate the full force of that verse, you have to go back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So verse 1, the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh. And if the Word was God and the Word became flesh, then God became flesh. The invisible God took on human form. Jesus was human. Jesus was God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word for dwelt there in Greek is the word for setting up a tent. Pitching a tent or tabernacle. The Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. That's one way it could be translated. Tabernacle is just a big tent. Now, I used to think that this verse implied mainly that Jesus was only here on earth in physical form on earth temporarily. Tent or tabernacle being just a temporary dwelling. 
And that's certainly the emphasis in some contexts where this Greek word is used. But if you look up all the references in the New Testament, you'll find that it doesn't always imply a temporary status. For example, Revelation 21 verse 3, we see the eternal new heavens and new earth and they're described this way. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. The dwelling place of God is with men. Same Greek word. And he will dwell with them. He will pitch his tent. Same word again. One's a verb, one's a noun. Same word though. God will pitch his tent with them and they shall be his people. There's nothing temporary about that. I think what pitching a tent here implies is that God wants to be very close to us and on very familiar terms with us. He wants to be close. He wants a lot of interaction. And I get that from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, where the Apostle Paul speaks of God as being the blessed and only potentate, King of kings, Lord of lords, who only has immortality, dwelling in light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. God dwells in inapproachable light, unapproachable light, so gloriously brilliant in his essence that mortal man cannot see it, cannot behold it. And if God hadn't come in human form, then nobody could approach unto him, but the invisible God became visible. The unapproachable God became flesh. He dwelt among us. He set up his tent in our own backyard, as it were, so that we could approach under him, so that we could see him and behold him and converse with him, be on very familiar terms with him. If you come into a community and build a huge palace and put up a wall round about it, that's going to communicate something about your desires concerning the people. But if you pitch a tent in my backyard, then you'll probably eat from my table. You'll probably use my bathroom. Familiar. This is why God became human. He came and pitched his tent in our backyard so that we could have a lot of dealings with him. That's the third step here in our text tonight. Firstly, God is invisible. Secondly, he revealed himself in the law of Moses. Thirdly, he became man. God became human and set up his tent among us. The fourth step is that in Jesus we see God. Verse 14 says, The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice he says, we beheld, John says, we have seen his glory. Who does the his refer to? It refers to the word. The word was made flesh and we beheld his glory. Back to verse 1. The Word was God. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So beholding the Word, beholding Jesus, we behold God. 
the glory of God we see in Jesus, the visible attributes and characteristics of all that God is, is there in Jesus. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is God going public with his attributes. That's what we see in Jesus Christ. Paul says in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of his person. Jesus is the image of God. And therefore, when you see Jesus, you see God. God came and lived in a tent so that we could watch him closely. He wants to be seen and known in his son. He wants us to behold his glory revealed in his son. And that's what Jesus prays in John chapter 17. I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. Same point is made in here, verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom or the lap or the embrace of the Father, he hath declared him. Here the point is that even though God is a spirit and therefore invisible, John chapter 4, God has now revealed himself in an utterly unique way by the incarnation of himself in Jesus Christ. In Jesus we see God and how glorious he is. Moses in the law tells us the Old Testament tabernacle was all glorious within, but its glory lay hidden. There was no great beauty about the tabernacle's outward appearance. All the furniture of the outer court was made of ordinary brass. The curtains of the outer court were unadorned linen, bleached white by the sun. The outer curtain surrounding the holy place was made of animal skins which blackened with the weather. The only flash of colour was at the gate which gave access to the brazen altar and that was the only hint of the glories within. But from within, sorry, from without, from without there was nothing particularly glorious about the tabernacle. To the eye of the casual beholder it was just another tent although it was on a much bigger scale than the average tent and even when the tabernacle was moved from place to place every piece of the glorious furniture that was within the tabernacle itself was carefully covered from the eyes of the curious always and in the same way to many eyes the glory of God in Jesus Christ was a hidden glory When he came and pitched his tent among us, he did not lay his deity aside, he put on humanity. His glory was veiled within human flesh, veiled in flesh the Godhead, see. Hail, incarnate deity. But it was when the priest, the high priest, entered within the veil that all the glory of the tabernacle was seen. 
the inner hangings were of blue and of purple and scarlet and were of fine linen. The inner furniture was of pure gold or overlaid with gold. The mysterious Shekinah cloud that overshadowed the camp of Israel came to rest upon the mercy seat in the holiest of holies. Between the cherubim, place of atonement, the place where the blood was applied. And it was all bathed with light and the glory of another world and only the high priest could see it and only once a year. But John says we beheld God's glory in Jesus Christ. We saw the glory of God in Jesus Christ. No doubt it was a reference to the experience on the mount when for a few moments Jesus was transfigured before them and the veil of his humiliation was drawn back and they saw outwardly what he was inwardly, the full expression of his glory. And that Peter and James and John saw Jesus resplendent, white as the light, it says. They were eyewitnesses of his glory. Eyewitnesses of his majesty, Peter says. But it wasn't just limited to them and it wasn't just limited to that event. All the miracles that Jesus did were demonstrations, they were displays, they were the setting forth of the attributes and character of God. John chapter 2 verse 11. This beginning of miracles, the changing the water to wine, this beginning of miracles did Jesus incarnate of Galilee was to say and manifested forth his glory. Every miracle he performed. Every action he did, every word that he spoke was like the shining forth of the colours of the spectrum. And when the people saw it, all coming together, all having their focal point in him, they saw light. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Having completed in his body the work of dying on the cross for the sins of the world, Jesus arose and in his glorified body ascended into heaven and there in heaven John sees the vision of Christ as he now is, as we shall see him, the marks of deity upon him. His head and his hair is white like wool, white as snow. There's his eternity. His eyes as a flame of fire speaks of his omniscience. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged sword, must be the omnipotence of his word. His countenance was the sun shining in its strength. He is infinite glory. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Power and wisdom and truth, immortality, all the attributes of God are all in Christ. As a composite and complete, overflowing fullness, incomprehensible, inexhaustible. John says, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. You don't have to wonder today if there is such a thing as air or if there is such a thing as electricity. Today we have technology and there are ways and means for us to determine their presence. We can even determine the purity of the air or the power of the electricity. And we don't have to wonder if there is such a thing as a baby in the womb of a woman who is eight weeks pregnant. We don't even have to wonder what it's like 
We have the technology today to get incredible accuracy about its features. And so it is with God. We don't need to be in the dark about God. God's gone beyond oral tradition. He's gone beyond ink and parchment. He's begun He's gone beyond words on paper. He's gone beyond DVDs and videos and even live drama. He's actually come and pitched his tent in our backyard and beckons us to watch him, to see him, to behold him, to know him, to savour him in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And when you watch Jesus in action, you watch God in action. When you hear Jesus teach, you hear the words of God when you come to know what Jesus is like, you get to know what God is like. What is God like? What do we see in Jesus? John is very clear in what he wants to stress here. We see God's grace. We see God's truth. Verse 14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Then John repeats this in verse 17. The law was given by Moses, the grace and truth, the fullness of grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The point is this, that the essence of what God reveals about himself in Jesus is First, that God is true, that he is true, that he is real, more real than Mr. Tidov and all of us can see. There's a very real sense in that which looks real to us is just almost like a dream. Second Corinthians 4, while we look at the things that are uh, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen, they are temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. God is eternal. God is eternal truth. God is the ultimate reality. And we see that in Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And secondly, the essence of what God reveals about himself in Jesus is that he is full of grace. He is a God of grace. He's a gracious God. God is free and overflowing and lavish in his goodness towards sinful creatures. That's what grace is. And this is the essence of the reality of God. Because nothing reveals the fullness of deity more than the freedom of God's grace. God is free and full and happy and sufficient in himself. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need to share anything with us. But he is surging with infinite energy and fullness to meet our needs. That's grace. That's the capstone, as it were, of his glory. We saw his glory, full of grace and truth. Well, that's step four. First, God is visible. Sorry, invisible. Second, God revealed himself in the law of Moses. Third, God became human and set up his tent among us. Fourth, in Jesus we see God. We know what he is like. True reality, fullness of grace. Which brings us now to the top of our flight of stairs. The pinnacle 
of glorious Christmas truth concerning the incarnation. What is the connection between this revelation and you? Verse 16 gives the answer. And of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. So step five is this. God became a man not just to show us grace, but to give us grace. That expression, grace for grace, it's probably hard for us to understand because it is a difficult expression to render in English. It refers to abundance. When the Hebrews wanted to communicate lots of something, they sometimes just put the word twice, like in Genesis 14 verse 10, when in the valley of Siddim, there were lots of slime pits, and so the author puts the word pits twice. And the translators understood the idiom, and so they translate this way. The valley was full of pits. Pits upon pits. And here John is telling us that Jesus reveals God's grace upon grace. But he's also telling us what he did receive. And he's also telling us what we all can receive. Lots of grace. Grace upon grace. Grace piled upon grace. A bountiful, overflowing fountain. Grace taking the place of grace, like the new manna every morning. New grace for every day. Sufficient grace for current needs. Abundant grace for abundant needs. Where sin abounds. Grace to forgive much more abounds. Grace that overflows to us out of God's fullness. So lavish is it that it just pours forth from God. And so blessed are we in the receiving of it. In another place, the Apostle Paul says that all the fullness of the Godhead bodily resides in Jesus Christ. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus Christ. And you have to ask the question, where else could the fullness of the Godhead dwell? Where else is the capacity to contain such fullness? We might well ask, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who hath meted out the heaven as a span and com comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? In Jesus Christ alone is the capacity to contain the greatness of God. But not only does Jesus have the capacity to contain, he has the immutability to retain that fullness. Well, the scripture says in Colossians that in Christ all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus, abides in him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. His fullness in giving is our ever-present possession. And our blessedness in receiving it is an ever-present privilege. Like the widow's cruise of oil that wastes not, keeps coming and coming and coming and coming. Praise God to know 
that there is in the universe such a thing as fullness. For in most of our mortal pursuits there is barrenness and emptiness. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. But praise God, God has provided a fullness for us. For in us there's nothing but emptiness and utter vanity. In me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. In us there's a lack of merit. There's the absence of power to produce any merit. There's even the absence of the desire to procure it if we could. In these respects, human nature is a desert, empty, void, waste, inhabited only by sin and sorrow, and into such a world Emmanuel came. No wonder the angels cried, joy to the world, the Lord is come. They knew who he was. They had worshipped him at his throne. Heaven is his throne, the earth is merely his footstool, and yet our God contracted to a span was incomprehensibly made man. And astonishingly, astonishingly, John records in verse 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Mercifully, verse 12 exists, but as many as received him. To them gave he power, the authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. God does, doesn't just want us to stock our heads with knowledge about his truth and grace, rather that we would receive it and experience it. This Christmas, God wants to give us personally a foundation of truth, a foundation of reality to stand upon that won't cave in, won't go under in this ever-maddening world. And this Christmas, God wants to treat us with grace, grace to forgive all of our sins, all of them. Take away all of our guilt, make our conscience clean, ease our burdens, give us strength for each day, fill us with hope and joy and peace. This is the grace of God. This is why he came and dwelt among us. God came not just to show us grace, but to give us grace. And, friends, we must receive it. We must receive it. It's something to be received. It's something that can be spurned. But don't spurn it this evening. Receive Christ. Welcome Christ. Let earth receive her king. Welcome Jesus Christ for who he really is. And let God's grace and truth fill your heart with everlasting joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful news concerning the Incarnation. 
Thank you for, particularly for Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, which gives us the narrative. Thank you also for the gospel of John, which provides us with the theology within that narrative. Thank you for a complete revelation of the scriptures. Thank you for the written word. Genesis to Revelation, thank you for the, the living word, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Thank you for the glory of God that is in the face of Jesus Christ and thank you for the grace of God expressed to us in the giving of your Son. Lord, I pray that we would give Christ his rightful place. And particularly at Christmas time when there's uh, many things to attend to and uh, many, many good things. Pray that all the good things wouldn't in any way take the place of the best thing, the needful thing. Uh, Lord, help us to be the receivers, the joyful recipients of the grace of God at this time. Is anyone unsaved? Pray that they wouldn't reject Christ. Pray that they would receive God's wonderful gift of salvation in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, again, we thank you for sending Christ. Uh, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>